The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Well, let us uh, continue where we left off this morning. Yeah. And uh, we have been looking at uh, ways to develop the mind in good qualities uh, and how to kind of uh, overcome those things that stop us from achieving meditation, proper samadhi and all these kind of things. Uh, and I thought we would kind of try to continue a little bit on the same theme to uh, look more about the idea of metta, uh, metta practice. Uh, and there is one sutta in particular which uh, is, uh, t- talks about metta, which is the Kakachupama uh, Sutta, the uh, simile of the saw, uh, which many of you may have heard about, the famous simile of the saw. You haven't? You don't know the simile of the saw? Okay, oh, that's good. <laughs> so it's good. If people have heard about it, it makes it more, more exciting if you haven't heard about it before. Uh, so we have a look at the simile of the saw, uh, very famous simile in the suttas, uh, and uh, how it is possible to practice something which is so demanding, because the simile of saw really is really demanding in terms of uh, what we are supposed to do in terms of metta practice. But uh, I will uh, read some of the extracts that I have taken out from this sutta. This is found in the uh, middle-length sayings of the Buddha, number 21. And it talks about some of the benefits and also some of the ways in which uh, loving-kindness is to be developed. And uh, this is how it goes. Bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, upasakas, upasakas. It only says bhikkhus, but I'm kind of adding in the other ones just to... Uh, make it more complete. There are these five uh, ways of speech that others may use when they address you. The speech may be timely or untimely. It may be true or untrue. It may be gentle or harsh. It may be connected with good or connected with harm. It may be spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with a mind of inner hate. So these are it's kind of a standard five sets of right speech and if a slightly different way of looking at right speech. Uh, but if you look at the qualities there, they are very similar to the qualities that you find and uh, that we're talking about before. Yeah, true, truthful speech, timely uh, and harsh and gentle, all this, all of these things. Uh, I, I don't think we need to go into any much more on that. Uh, um, yeah. So anyway, so people can address you in all of these different ways, uh, and uh, sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it is unpleasant to be addressed in these ways. Uh, when others address you, yeah, say, say the same thing. Uh, uh, herein, monks, uh, you should train thus. Uh, our minds will remain unaffected. Uh, we shall utter no bad words. Uh, we shall abide compassionate for their welfare, with a mind of metta, loving-kindness, without inner hate. Uh, we shall abide pervading that person uh, with a mind imbued with loving-kindness and starting with him, starting with that person, uh, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world uh, with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, uh, immeasurable, without hostility uh, and without ill-will. That is how you should train bhikkhus. So th- this is already quite demanding, yeah, regardless of how people talk to you, what they say to you, uh, you should always have a sense of metta and, and compassion for them, uh, regardless of those things. Uh, and um, 
uh, we have, I've talked about this before, how you do that. And the way to do that is always to remember that uh, it is the other person's problem if they, have, if they do something stupid or wrong. And really, it is always impersonal. Very useful to remember that these things are really impersonal uh, because people do it because of the inner conditioning. Uh, then you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, and then you have to bear the brunt of that bad speech. Uh, but it's nothing to do with you, really. You just happen to be there. Uh, so uh, this is how you do it. And But what is interesting about this, and you will notice this is quite different from how metapractice is often taught uh, and how it is uh, spe specifically taught in the Visuddhimagga. This has a very different slant to it. Uh, because here you start with a person who is difficult. Uh, yeah, starting with him, starting with a person who may, who may use bad speech, uh, that is where you start. Uh, and uh, why is that? Uh, if you go to the uh, Visuddhimagga, the way that metta meditation is normally taught, uh, you start off with a person that you are kind of on friendly terms with, a person who you, who you have a very positive view of, a person who you kind of, you, it's easy to have a sense of kindness towards. Uh, but here is the exact opposite. You start with a person who is most difficult. Uh, and that person usually comes last on the list in the Visuddhimagga. Yeah, first of all, the friendly person, then the neutral one, then the kind of the enemy comes at the very bottom. Uh, so what is going on here? Why this difference? And uh, the difference here, I think, is that this is already someone who is practicing really well. Someone who's gone a long way on the path. Uh, someone who doesn't really have any enemies. Yeah, you already have, don't have any enemies already. Like if you are a really good Buddhist, you try to avoid having enemies because having enemies is kind of bad news. It doesn't really work. Yeah, you if you have enemies and then suddenly you die, well, you, that's 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 not good. We can't really afford to have enemies on the Buddhist path because uh, things are so impermanent. Before you know it, you know it's too late to say you're sorry and to move on. So uh, having enemies is always a bad idea. So the assumption here is that you're already practicing really well. You have no enemies, you're friends with everyone. But then when someone kind of does something which could lead to a bit of ill will or anger, you neutralize that straight away. So you come back to that even mind. And again, you have no enemies again. So it's kind of this is what it's about. It's about someone who is already practicing. And if you are doing the right thing, you should start with the enemy, overcome that ill will, and then you can move on and do the practice. And because the practice that is demanded here, if you see what, he is, what the Buddha is saying here, is that you have, uh, you pervade the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness. In other words, this is already loving-kindness taken to a very high level. Yeah? And uh, that level of loving-kindness is only possible if you eliminate all enmity that you have towards anyone so you have to start with eliminating all the enmity. Uh, only then can you then have the metta towards the all-encompassing world and everywhere. Uh. So this is why this is a bit different from the usual one. Uh, and, uh, and this is really what it is uh, based on. Uh. The idea that you find in the commentaries and the Visuddhimagga specifically uh, is the idea of the more preliminary stages of, uh, of metta meditation. Uh, and they are not really mentioned in the sutta. Suttas come with a mind that is already purified and you just do the metta to the all-encompassing world, to everywhere. Uh, and it doesn't really teach you how to get there. Uh, and uh, this is kind of where the Visuddhimagga fills in the gaps uh, and teaches you how to kind of, at least in its system, how to get to that particular point. Uh. And it's interesting why. Why isn't, in this, why is, isn't this found in the suttas? Uh, 
And uh, I, I think that basically because the way that the suttas deal with this is uh, not to focus on metta meditation as such, uh, but to use other means to get to that point. Uh, so in the suttas it's more about purifying yourself by thinking right, doing those things, uh, then maybe using anapanasati uh, to get you into a state of samadhi. And once you're there, then you can do this metta to the all-encompassing world. Uh, it is uh, So it is... Uh, uh, it's a kind of different approach, uh, whereas the Visuddhimagga, you start by doing metta at an earlier point. Uh, so which one is right? Uh, which one should we be doing? Should we be following the Visuddhimagga, or should we be following the suttas? Or, and uh, very often it is uh, the case that uh, uh, you do if whatever works for you. Uh, so if you find that something is beneficial uh, and you can make it work, uh, then that's okay. You don't have to be kind of a purist. I'm only going to follow the word of the Buddha and I'm going to kind of uh, throw, chuck out the word of anyone else. Uh, it, that, that is impossible anyway because everything has to be interpreted to some extent. Uh, so you always have to follow more than just the word of the Buddha. Uh, so in the end, it is about doing what works. Uh, but keeping in mind what the Buddha taught, so that you have a kind of final guidance on what is the right way of doing things. So it's a bit of kind of being wise to what is going on and not being too kind of purist, only the word of the Buddha, because that really is impossible. So that is how you, how you this is what this practice is about. This is then, then you abide the all-encompassing world, pervading everything with a mind of loving-kindness, abundant, yeah, filled with this, exalted mahagata, literally gone great, gone large, immeasurable, apamana, without limits, no limits, unlimited mind. No one is excluded. Even that person you find really hard to get along with, even that person has to be included. Without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train bhikkhus. So this is pretty much the standard way that this is explained in the suttas. And uh, so this is where we're trying to aim with the loving-kindness meditation here. And then uh, after this, the Buddha has a, a number of similes here uh, to explain what the mind is like when you practice metta and loving-kindness in this particular way. Uh, and the similes are quite nice. I thought I would read them out uh, and uh, gives you an idea of the kind of mind state that we are aiming to achieve. And again, the, uh, the standard is quite high. Uh, the Buddha usually doesn't mince his word. He kind of, he kind of uh, uh, often looks at things from a very high uh, standpoint. Because, uh, suppose a man came with a hoe and a basket and said, I shall make this great earth to be without earth. He would dig here and there, strew the soil here and there, spit here and there, and urinate here and there, <laughs> saying, be without earth, be without earth. What do you think, Because Could that man make this great earth be without earth? No, Venerable Sir. Why is that? Because this great earth is deep and immeasurable. It is not easy to make it be without earth. Eventually that man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So it's kind of, it's almost, it's a bit funny, isn't it? You come with a hoe and a basket 
and you think I shall make this great earth to be without earth and you spit a bit here and you urinate a bit here and there and then you kind of this is <laughs> how you're going to eliminate the earth on this thing here the, so the point here is that you have developed your mind to be like the earth yeah your mind is incredibly large it encompasses everything there's nothing that is excluded from that mind all beings in the universe you don't have your favorite enemy who is excluded everyone is inside and of course, if then someone comes and kind of spits on you, spitting you and urinating here, this is a simile of doing something unpleasant to you. Yeah, yeah? that's kind of the point of this. Uh, someone comes with bad speech, uh, that's like urinating on, on you in, in effect. Uh, I like this kind of language, it's very down to earth. Uh, yeah? The Buddha doesn't really, he doesn't kind of try to pretend to have some kind of, uh, uh, kind of unreasonable standard of language whereby you don't the earthy things really come out in the suttas uh, and it's kind of nice and you this is one of the things that you find with some many of the kind the uh, teachers of uh, you know of um, many places uh, but uh, once people you know get to a very high state of awakening it seems they start to become very earthy uh, and they say things as they are they have no compunction or problems uh, we're calling things by their real names yeah if you urinate you urinate okay that's it uh, and it, that's what you call it uh, and it's something nice about it, there's something very real about it. Uh, and then you br he brings this into the suttas. Uh, sometimes the Buddha would talk about his own body and even his own bodily functions, uh, which is kind of almost difficult to read because you tend to put the Buddha on such a high pedestal. It's hard to read about the Buddha as an ordinary human being. Uh, but some of the passages are very confronting like that. They confront you with the, hum the human nature of the Buddha in a very direct and immediate way. It almost makes you flinch a little bit when you read it. That's what, it's, what it feels like. But this is, to me, is actually a very appealing thing about the suttas, that they are so real. It's not the pretense. There's no pretense there. It is actually, this is the way things are. This is the way the human body is. Okay, so that's the way you talk about it. No more messing around there. So you have this enormous mind. So if someone comes and kind of tries to affect a tiny bit of the corner of that mind, of course, nothing happens because your mind is exalted, is immeasurable. It is like the earth. And somewhere else, the Buddha says also, I think that's to Rahula, his son, he says that you should develop a mind like the earth because the earth never complains. Yeah? So if you throw waste on the earth, or you spit, or you do whatever stuff you want to do on the earth, the earth just kind of remains and stays there, and it is equanimous. So you use this earth as a metaphor for the mind that is really developed and exalted in this way. Yeah? So um, let's go on to the next one. Yeah? Because suppose a man came with crimson, turmeric, indigo, or carmine, and said, they're, they're all colors, uh, said, I shall draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space. What do you think, Bekus? Could that man draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space? No, Venerable Sir, because empty space is formless and uh, uh, invisible. Uh, it is not easy to draw pictures there or make pictures appear there. Uh, eventually that man would reap only weariness and disappointment. Uh, it is not easy to draw pictures there, that's right. Uh, it is hard. So here uh, you compare the mind that is fully developed as empty here. Uh, there's nothing there. It is empty, just like empty space is empty. And we cannot possibly draw pictures on empty space. It is not easy. I like the understatement there. But uh, So you 
uh, again, and, and in what sense is the mind empty here? And what this, in what this mind is empty of at this stage, when you build it up to a very high degree of metta, it is basically empty of ego. Huh? There's very little sense of self left, because the only thing that you identify with at this particular point uh, is the metta, yeah, that, that beautiful quality. Huh? And uh, all the other things that you te- we tend to identify with as human beings, uh, yeah, w- whatever it is, whatever that gives rise to some degree of conceit in us, uh, education, uh, social standing, maybe gen- we identify with gender, we identify with age, we identify with nationality, we identify with all of these kind of things that we identify with, with uh, all of that becomes irrelevant. Uh, all of that is kind of non-existence, because all you have uh, is this beautiful mind of metta, beautiful mind of loving kindness for the whole world, uh, and that is really the only identity that exists in you. Uh, that's all that actually uh, remains. Uh, and you can't really attack that. Uh, yeah, you can't make feel someone bad because of metta practice. It's impossible. Uh, so it's very hard. It's that emptiness inside uh, makes it very difficult to attack someone like that or say something bad to them that will stick uh, because it, there's nothing there that it can stick to. Uh, you're em- basically empty. Uh, you've gone a very long way on the path to emptiness in Buddhism. Uh, there's only a tiny thing left, uh, and that is this beautiful state of mind that remains inside of you. Uh. So this is another aspect of metta. Yeah, it kind of uh, it makes you your personality less sticky. Uh. It gives you less of a of someone to be. You are nobody at the end of the day. Uh. And this is such a beautiful thing, and this is why kind of metta also becomes possible. Uh, you stop discriminating with people, distinguishing between uh, all these things that we normally distinguish between. Uh, so we kind of make put up barriers between people, me against them. Hum- humanity is full of barriers. Uh, yeah, one of the main barriers is nationality. Uh, another barrier is like gender barrier between genders, uh, between ages, between. All kind of things, we create barriers, uh, and this, of course, gives rise to so much of that identity. Uh. Yeah, there is a nice sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya called the um, Earth Washing Sutta, or the Gold Refiner Sutta, one of those, I can't remember now, it's in the Anguttara 3's Numerical Discourses number 100, if you want to look it up. Uh. Uh, and in that sutta, it talks about the gradual purification of the mind. Yeah. And it uh, compares the gradual purification of mind uh, with the refinement of gold, which is very interesting. The mind is like gold. Yeah, yeah. The mind is not uh, uh, something kind of unimportant. Gold is the most precious substance usually uh, that we have, uh, in, uh, kind of regarded as by convention as being precious. Uh, and the mind is like that, uh, of course, it, except that it's much more than gold, of course. Uh, gold does only gives a tiny bit of happiness, uh, whereas a mind well purified gives much more than that. Uh. So it shows you how to purify gold. And to purify gold, uh, what you have to do is you have to do it in the right procedure. Uh, You have to, first of all, take out the very coarse defilements of the gold, uh, then go for the medium ones, then go for the refined ones, uh, and then go for the tiny, tiny ones at the very end, uh, the really minute ones. uh. And if you get it the wrong way around, it won't work. You can't start with the fine ones and then do the coarse ones later, uh, because you won't be able to get the fine ones out if you kind of start with that. uh. So you have to do it in the right sequence. uh. And there it is said that some of the most refined uh, defilements that we have are defilements that have to do with uh, uh, you know, um, your reputation, uh, or where you come from, uh, or the family that you belong to, uh, and that sort of thing. In other words, our identity, our sense of self. This is one of the things that you abandon on the path to samadhi, uh, and you have to let go of all of that, so you have no identity anymore. Uh. And this is one of the beautiful things. You kind of 
go into samadhi, your identity disappears, uh, and uh, you go into a state of metta, and you become a blob of metta, and uh, identity is completely gone, basically. Uh, it's wonderful, yeah. And of course, once you do that, you become much more able to treat people uh, afterwards as basically just people, uh, not worrying too much about all these distinctions that we have in this world. Uh, it's uh, all these things that create so much turmoil, so many problems, so many things. Uh, it's a terrible when I see that even Buddhist monks get into nationalist causes. Uh, yeah, it's just such a, such a. It's so sad. How can Buddhist monks get into nationalism, and they think that we should kind of. Uh, it's good to uh, you know kill Muslims, for example, because if you kill because the Muslims are a danger to Buddhism. So if we kill them, we're kind of kind of saving Buddhism by killing, or not maybe not even killing them, but at least chucking them out of the country or whatever. But uh, you're never gonna save Buddhism by being harsh to other people. At least to me, it seems completely nuts. And here you have, instead of I, uh, identifying with the principles of Buddhism, you identify with Buddhism itself. I am a Buddhist, and everything else looks like a, a threat because of that. But what we really should identify with, instead of identifying as Buddhist, we should identify as practicing Buddhist. We should identify with the principles of Buddhism. That is the right way, to my mind, to looking at these things. So let's throw out all this stupid nationality stuff. Uh, let's throw out these things that kind of divide us from other people, uh, because all it does is create strife and problems in our world. Uh, and this is part of where this leads us. Uh, Metta meditation precisely gets us there, uh, and then we can embrace everyone. Uh, we can take everyone on board, regardless of their background. Uh, that is so much more, uh, so, so much more beautiful, and so much more conducive to uh, all good things. Uh, uh, and especially we're talking about harmony and cohesion in the previous sutta is certainly very conducive to that. Uh, so another, so there's another beautiful little simile for you: the idea of uh, not being able to draw pictures uh, on empty space. And then we have the uh, the next one. Uh, because suppose a man came with a blazing grass torch and said, "I shall heat up and burn away the river Ganges with this blazing grass torch." Lots of stupid people in this similes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Bikus? Could that man heat up and burn away the river Ganders with that blazing grass torch? No, Venerable Sir. Why is that? Because the river Ganders is deep and immense. It is not easy to heat it up and burn it away with a blazing grass torch. Eventually that man would reap only weariness and disappointment. And... Uh, if you have been to India, you know how wide the river Ganges is. You kind of go to Patna, and this bridge is about two or three kilometers long. Here. And that's how, how far it is from one bank to the other one. Here. Anyway, so uh, again, yeah, you cannot touch something which is so large. Large, your mind has been developed to the size of the river Ganges. It is enormous. And of course, water is always cool. So even the waters of the river Ganges are cool. There's this cool stream of the mind flowing along, vast, broad, developed to a wide extent. And if someone comes with a little bit of hot anger in the corner of your mind, it doesn't really make an impact on you. You just, you just worry about them, worry about whether they are sane or not, and you feel a bit of compassion for them because they're getting angry with the river Ganges, and you realize it is pointless to do that. So again, very similar to the previous uh, uh, simile uh, and uh, in uh, or the one two, two up that we had before. Uh. And then there is another simile here, uh, and this is a simile about a cat skin bag. Uh, 
and I don't really know what the cat skin bag is. I guess it's a bag made of cat skin. Uh, but uh, this would have been something that existed in ancient India and because we don't have them anymore. It's hard to kind of make head or tails of, of this particular uh, symbolism. I'm just going to drop it, uh, leave it out. Uh, and if you wish, you can read it for yourself later on. Majamanika 21, if you're interested in these things. Uh. But now we come to the simile that gives its name to this entire sutta. And this is the simile of the Soha. And this is the, what this sutta really is about. Uh. So this is uh, uh, how this simile of the saw goes. Uh, you, maybe you will recognize it once you hear it. Uh, but uh, uh, for those of you who haven't heard it before, uh, great. This is it. Uh, okay. So this is one of the famous similes in the suttas. It is so famous, it is actually talked about in other suttas. It is referred to. Yeah, they refer back. And this is one of the things that kind of unify the suttas and make them into a consistent whole, is that they tend to refer back to each other. So one place refers to a similar that is said somewhere else. One sutta refers to another sutta. And this kind of makes it into a cohesive whole that gives you a feeling it all came from one source, from one person speaking these things. There's many little kind of pointers like that which shows you what are the early suttas of Buddhism, what we call the EBTs, early Buddhist texts. And this is one of those many, many pointers uh, uh, which uh, uh, kind of draws all of these things together and make them into a cohesive whole. Anyway, this is this uh, simile here. Because even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handled saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them uh, would not be carrying out my teaching. Uh, that's what I mean by the standard is very high here. Uh. Here because you should train thus, our minds will remain unaffected. Uh, we shall utter no evil words. Uh, words. Uh, we shall abide compassionate for their welfare. Uh. Yeah, these are the guys who are cutting you up limb by limb. You should have compassion for them, right? Uh, not for yourself, for them. With a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate, uh, we shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And starting with them, uh, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world uh, with a mind imbued with loving kindness, uh, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train, bhikkhus. There, there you are. Can you, are you ready for that? <laughs> I always joke. I, I, that one of the things that we should do, I always say that we should uh, kind of, now I have taught this, yes, and now you know what you have to do. And next time around, we'll have a practice session. So we'll <laughs> pin one of you down over here. We'll get out a big saw and we'll see what happens if we can do it. <laughs> So this is kind of the, we have to have some practical, yeah, some kind of show if these things work. Otherwise, it gets too boring, always giving talks. Uh, practical demonstrations are always useful. Huh? <laughs> so maybe I should be the kind of the rat. Maybe I should pin me down there. You can see if I can see what I have. Huh? <laughs> so uh, this is almost hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, how can you actually do this? How can you get two bandits, two really vile and bad people, you hold you down, pin you down to the ground, uh, they get out some kind of terrible saw, two-handled saw, kind of this old-fashioned saw. You have a handle in one end and all this rusty teeth yeah, going along. Yeah, and they start cutting you apart one limb after the other one. Yeah? And eventually, you know, you know where that is going to lead. And still, you just sit there. Oh, yeah, may you be well and happy here. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to believe, isn't it? How is that possible? 
And of course, the point is, it is possible. And one of the purposes of this Dhamma teaching is to show us what is possible sometimes. It is to inspire you at the height to which you can develop your mind. It's possible to have metta and compassion even in situations where normally people would be completely outraged. They would be screaming and shouting and what else? It is possible. And this is what is so interesting about this. This is what makes it kind of exciting. Yeah, When you take the Dhamma to, ex- to the extreme, it forces you to start to think about people and the world and life in a slightly different way. So how is this possible? And the reason why it is possible is the things that I have basically been talking about already. It is possible because the people who are really foolish here, the people who are really stupid, the people who are making bad karma for themselves, the people who are going to suffer, probably probably suffering already, but who are going to suffer enormously for this in the future, are not, it's not you. Yeah, okay, you may have a bit of pain, but you're going to be dead pretty soon. No big deal, you're dead anyway. Yeah, No more pain. So you just die, and then you move on into the future. And if you have a mind of loving kindness all the way along, you're going to be reborn in such a beautiful realm. You're going to be happy. You, they killed you. You can say, oh, thank you, yeah. Okay, and then you go off to a happy realm afterwards. Uh, this is what I mean. Once you get into this kind of way of thinking, uh, the whole thing kind of changes uh, dramatically. Uh, but the bandits, uh, what do you think is going to happen to them? Uh, if they take a person who is so pure uh, that you're able to have metta in this kind of situation uh, and they treat you like that and they kill you, uh, they're going to make an enormous about, amount of bad karma. Uh, Someone like that who has a, a mind that is so pure, uh, uh, someone who has uh, gone beyond any kind of ill will and desire, is somebody who, uh, in their presence, you can make enormous amount of karma, either good or bad, depending on what you do. Uh. So once you recognize that, you look at them and you think, I feel sorry for you guys. Uh, you don't know what you're doing. Uh. You're blind. You're completely deluded. Uh. You're cutting up a good person. You know that you're good because when you have that kind of mind, you know that you have a pure heart. Uh. Not in an egotistical way, but you just know it because you know this, these are very positive things. And then when you look at them, you feel so sorry for them. And then you have a sense of compassion. Instead of focusing on yourself, okay, yes, I have this pain. I can bear it. I can deal with it. I'm going to be dead in a couple of minutes because the blood is just flowing out of me anyway. So then I'm going to be off to a nice heavenly realm. But you guys, who knows where you're going to go in the future? You have a serious problem. And this is how you do this, yeah? And this is all of this thing about the idea of, uh, like, you're turning the tables uh, instead of focusing on yourself. uh, And when we focus on ourselves, our mind is often so narrow. It is so small. It is my world. And once you narrow down into your little world, then everything else seems dangerous and alien uh, because everything else can potentially hurt you and be damaging to you, So the little world of me against everyone else actually is a very painful state to live in because you feel small, you feel vulnerable, you feel like the world is out to get you and all these kind of things. But the broad mind, when you have compassion, even in this kind of situation, is just so much more nice and so much more beautiful when it expands out and here, encompassing the whole cosmos, all beings everywhere. Wow, what a beautiful thing that actually is. So this is how you can do that. Yeah, this is how you can actually change something which seems so unfair, so bad, into something positive instead. Of course, it is not easy. Yeah, if you try this kind of straight away, you have a hard time doing it. But it can be done by developing gently and carefully over time, over the years and over whatever. Eventually, each one of you can get there. Of course, it takes commitment. It takes perseverance. You really have to 
do it. You really have to understand that this is important. Uh, this is kind of the first thing to understand that this actually matters, uh, that it actually is really important. Uh, and once you get that, uh, then it becomes possible. Uh, how do you understand that is important? Uh, you understand that it's important by getting more right view, uh, by attuning your outlook to the outlook of the Buddha. And as your outlook attunes to that of the Buddha, you start to see the world and everything in the right way. Then you get that urge to do all of these things. Okay. So, because if you keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind, do you see any course of speech, uh, trivial or gross, uh, that you could not endure? No, Venerable Sir. Therefore, because uh, you should keep this advice on the simile of the soul constantly in mind. Uh, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. So constantly in mind means that it is kind of there in the back of your mind. It doesn't mean that you think about it all the time, but it's kind of there, accessible on the shelf of perceptions, and you can draw that perception down at any time to counteract any problems that you may have. So that is the simile of the saw. Was it good? Yeah, good simile, yeah, good simile, right? Yeah, it's, it's actually really good. And it, it it, it, some of the teachers of the Buddha are really challenging, yeah? and that is why they are so interesting, yeah? because you really have to think in a different way. First time you read this, you think, yeah, yeah, whatever, and you put it to one side. Uh, yeah, you, kinda, yeah I, you can't deal with it, it's just too much. You don't know what to, say, what to think about that sort of stuff. Uh, sure, you know, yeah, okay. And <laughs> it, because it's just too much. And, but after a while, when you start when you contemplate these things, actually... Uh, you realize there's something to this. Uh, yeah, there's something really going on here. This actually is possible. Uh, and there's many things in Buddhism. When I read it the first time, I thought, yeah, whatever. And I just kind of just turned aside because it was just too much, too demanding. Uh, and after a while, you start to realize that the, the way, what the Buddha said actually is probably spot on. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually very interesting when you start to understand how the Dhamma works and how it functions. Uh, so that is the right attitude to have when you read the suttas. If there's something that seems too much, okay, just leave it aside for a while. Uh, come back to it. And once you start to mature uh, in the understanding of the Buddhist teaching, suddenly things that before seem completely outrageous, uh, suddenly they seem uh, possible. Yeah, maybe it is like this. Uh, maybe this can be done. Who knows? Uh, and then things become different. Uh, and this is really a very good attitude to have in general uh, when you uh, read the suttas. Uh, it's not the case that we should just take everything on board. It is not the case in Buddhism that we should just believe everything because the Buddha says so. We should always investigate. You should always reflect for yourself. I would recommend you not to dismiss anything either because if you dismiss things from the Buddha, then you may miss out on some very important stuff. But neither accept things too easily nor dismiss it too easily. Try to have that middle ground and then try to learn and see where it leads you. That is often, I think, the best approach to these things. Okay, so that is how to then gradually develop the metta. And as you would have seen in this particular sutta, to develop the metta meditation, and we looked at also the metta this morning, the focus has to be on the good qualities in people. Yeah, When you focus on the good qualities and you see that, then it is possible to develop that metta. The word metta comes from the word mitta, same as the word kalyana mitta. So it means really something like friendliness. We call it loving-kindness. There's many ways you could translate it. Friendliness, loving-kindness, uh, these are all acceptable uh, translations. Uh, so that friendliness and that uh, uh, strong wish for other people's welfare and happiness uh, 
uh, as friendless probably a bit too weak when it, these things get developed. Uh, uh, this is comes out of that that ability to focus on people's good qualities, uh, and that's why you have to first of all uh, get rid of the focus on the bad qualities, uh, and then as you do that, then the metta becomes possible. Uh. So uh, that is that. Uh, now um, we still have a bit of time left, uh, so um, another sutta. Uh, you want more? Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, so let's have a look at. Uh, I'll have a look at another sutta, which also is very practical. And uh, uh, I'll do it fairly quickly. We don't have that much time, but we have a little bit of time. And this is called the uh, Vitaka Santana Sutta. I thought um, this was, might go a little bit fast, so I had something at the. Uh, I thought this one might be a useful one. And Vitaka Santana me, means the calming of thoughts. Yeah, and specifically, it is about the calming and the elimination of bad thoughts. This is specifically what this is about. And it gives five different ways of dealing with bad thoughts. So this is perhaps the most important sutta in the entire uh, Pitaka, uh, the entire Sutta Pitaka, about how to remove thinking in general. Yeah, it gives five different ways of doing this. So let's have a quick look at this and see what, uh, what is in here. Now, thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Samati in Jeta's Grove, Anattapindika's monastery. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied, and the Blessed One said this, bhikkhus, when a bhikkhu is pursuing the higher mind, from time to time he should give attention to five things. What are the five? Or to five signs, it says here. Five uh, causes might be another translation of that. It's, it is quite hard to translate. The word is nimitta, nimitta and uh, uh, it means different things in different contexts. It's not easy to get a translation of that word. Uh, so here a bhikkhu is pursuing the higher mind, adhichitta. This means that you are aiming for samadhi or the brahma-viharas, yeah? taken to a very, very high extent. Uh, such as the jhanas, etc. And if you want to attain those jhanas, uh, uh, you have to deal with the problems of the mind. And this is how you do it. Here, bhikkhus, when a bhikkhu is giving attention to some sign, uh, and owing to that sign, there arise in him bad, unwholesome thoughts, uh, connected with desire, connected with ill will, and connected with confusion or delusion. Uh, then you should give attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome. Uh, when he gives attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, then any evil unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate and delusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and stilled. So, this is all you have to do. Yeah. So, if you have a thought... And that thought gives rise to some kind of unwholesome quality in your mind. Uh, usually maybe ill will or upset of some sort. These are the really kind of the bad things, the worst ones. Uh, if you do that, all you have to do is to think about something else which does not give rise to that ill will. That's how simple it is. So what, 
what does this mean in practice? Well, this, what it means in practice is that uh, there's two ways of doing this. Uh, one way is that, for example, you are thinking about as you're sitting in your meditation. Yeah, this is, can be useful both in meditation but also outside. But you're sitting in the, your meditation practice, and some suddenly a thought arises in the mind about a person that you're having problems with. Yeah, and a bit of upset and a bit of ill will arise at the same time. So. How do you deal with that? There's two ways of dealing with that. One is not to think about that person, but to think about something else. That would be changing your attention. But even better, the most powerful method of all, and this is the method I mentioned before, and the one you find elsewhere in the suttas, is not to change the object as such, but how you view that object. So nimitta means also, does not just mean the object, it also means the features in that object. So as you are looking at this person, you actually remind yourself, no, actually, they have a deeper qualities to them that are very beautiful. Yeah? And then you give rise to that metta, and that metta then overpowers that anger or that negativity that arises at that particular time. And this, is some, this method is sometimes called substitution. But to call a substitution is a little bit too simple, because really what you're doing is that you are... Um, you are looking at that object that is giving rise to ill will or to desire or confusion in a new way. You're looking at the other aspects of it. And as you do that, that defilement in the mind dies down because of that. And the, the typical example that I gave you this morning is, for example, when your fellow members here at the BSV, they might irritate you a little bit. Do they ever irritate you a little bit, the fellow members of BSV? It would be a miracle if it didn't happen. Yeah, It's guaranteed that it's going to happen sometimes. So, so what you do then is remember, actually, these are very good people. They are people who are practicing well, who are trying their very best to do what is right. What a wonderful privilege it is to be able to be around people like this. And straight away, if you think like that, and you catch yourself early on, bang, that negative thought is annihilated, obliterated, made to not exist. This is the only way to obliterate a bad thought, yeah? By using the opposite to kind of destroy it in this way. Wisdom power obliterates, willpower only suppresses. So big difference, yeah? And that is how you do it. Especially with ill will, it is very useful. With desire, it is much more difficult to do because desire is always more sticky and it seems so nice, it seems so good. With delusion, it can be very hard to do because delusion, we don't even know that we are deluded sometimes, can be very hard. But certainly try that with ill will. And if you can do it with ill will, you're already going to go a long way because that is by far the worst of the defilements and also the one that is easiest to do to deal with. So it's quite straightforward. Yeah, it's not that, not that kind of advanced. And um, this technique is the first one of the five techniques given here. Because it is the first one, it is the most important one. It is also the most powerful one. If you can use this, you can overcome things in an instant just by reminding yourself that there is an alternative way of looking at things. Then you have the simile. They always have similes in these things. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice might knock out, remove, or extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one. So too, you follow this particular method, and then your mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and stilled. So the coarse peg is the bad thought. The fine peg is the good thought that you counteract the bad thought with. And then you, so you can see there is a sequence here. Yeah, your sequence is, first of all, get rid of the bad thought, 
Then you get rid of the refined thought, then you still the mind. Don't never try to go directly from bad thought to stillness. You always have to get the sequence right. If the thought is bad, don't try to kind of obliterate it by kind of you know blotting it out, anything like that. Overcome it first of all. Once it is properly overcome, then you move on to the stillness. If you try to meditate and watch the breath while you're angry, trying to blot it out, all you're going to end up is a, with is a headache. Headache and all kinds of other maybe mental problems down the road. So don't try to do that sort of thing. The sequence that we do things in is very important and it matters. So, method number one, and that brings the mind to stillness. It is uh, stilled, it is unified internally, and that means samadhi. It means the jhanas, it means the brahma viharas, uh, whatever it is that you're trying to achieve on this path. Uh, method number two. If, while he's giving attention to some other sign, yeah, you're trying to look at this uh, other way of looking at things, uh, uh, connected with what is wholesome, there still arise in him bad, unwholesome thoughts, connected with desire, connected with ill will, and connected with confusion. Uh, then you should examine the danger in those thoughts thus. Uh, these thoughts are unwholesome. Uh, they are reprehensible. They result in suffering. Uh, when he examines the danger in those thoughts, and then any bad, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, connected with ill will, and connected with confusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and stilled. So here you are more explicitly using your wisdom. Yeah, you use. You know that. Uh, uh, you have thought a little bit about yourself, you have, you have some insight into your mind, and you know that anger is always connected with problems. Uh, it leads to problems for yourself, it is unpleasant in its own right, it leads to arguments and problems in the world, uh, and if you act out the anger too much, it leads to tremendous problems also in future lives and everything. Uh, anger is this one of the defilements that is the source of most suffering in this world. Uh, so you just remember that, and you have reflected on that. You know the problems of anger properly, huh? so that once that anger comes up, huh? yeah, you just remember the problems, and bang, the mind turns away. Huh? If that doesn't happen, huh? if you think that you have understood the danger of anger, huh? but when the anger arises, you remember the danger, the mind does not turn away, it's because you haven't really understood the danger of anger. Huh? If you really understand the danger of anger, and the same thing is also true of sensual uh, pleasure, essential objects in the world, if you really understand it, uh, all you have to do is remind yourself of that danger, bring that perception to mind, and automatically the mind moves away. That's all you have to do. Huh? And uh, I often like to use a simile, I use this on the retreat as well, the simile of the hot plate. Uh, yeah, if, by ac if the hot plate, someone has just turned on the hot plate uh, in your house, but you don't know that, uh, and it's been on for a while, it's really, really hot, uh, and it, because you don't know, you kind of put your hand there by accident, uh, what happens? You don't have to think, yeah, should I remove my hand? Uh, no need to do that. Yeah, it just happens like that. Automatic. It's an automatic reaction. It's a withdrawing from suffering because you know this is problematic. You know you're really going to hurt if you keep your hand on that hot plate. And this is exactly what is going on here. You know that this is suffering. You know it's a hot plate. So your mind withdraws from that thought straight away. This is what is meant by fully understanding this of course, that is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, it takes a lot of training, etc. So very often we have to do something that is uh, 
kind of a pro- an approximation to that, at least a little bit of that. Uh, but that is kind of uh, ultimately where you're hoping to go down the track. Yeah. So very powerful. This is using wisdom. Yeah. The deeper your wisdom is, uh, the more you understand the danger in those thoughts. Uh, why are they so dangerous? Because they tie you to a samsara, they lead to endless suffering, uh, endless problems. Uh, and it's just that we don't really see that properly. That's why uh, we, we keep on doing it. Uh. And then you have the simile again, which kind of brings home the point very powerfully here. Just as a man or a woman, young, youthful, and fond of ornaments, uh, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted uh, if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck. So too, uh, yeah, when you see those thoughts, you are, they are like a carcass of a dog or a snake or a human being hanging around your neck. That's what it's like. Uh, so you give them up. Yeah, you are disgusted with it. And then the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and stilled. It's powerful simile, right? It's really, really powerful because uh, uh, it shows you the degree to which... Uh, uh, the difference between someone who has seen these things properly reacts to these things uh, compared to uh, someone who has not. Uh, basically, is the difference between the noble ones uh, and the people who are not noble ones. That is kind of the distinction here. Yeah. So remember the power of wisdom. Uh, this is all about wisdom. Both of these two first ones, you use wisdom to understand the problem in the situation and then you abandon it as a consequence. Uh, and this is one of the points I like to make that if you read the suttas carefully, the way to overcome problems, uh, the way to develop the path in the suttas uh, always concerns wisdom power, not willpower. Uh, the real way that really is powerful is about using wisdom. Uh, and is it good to remember that because we tend to use willpower so much? Yeah, if you see something inside of yourself you don't like, you cannot just force it out of your mind. You blot it out. You don't want to see it. That's not me. Yeah, I don't want to see it. And then you kind of carry on. But actually, it is you. It is part of who you are, or it is not you, depending on how you look at this. But it's part of that mental makeup that we all have. Okay, accept yourself for who you are. Then learn to deal with it. Then be wise about it. Then overcome it. And uh, the suttas often talk about obliterating these thoughts, about annihilating them. And the only way they can be annihilated is through wisdom. Because when you use wisdom, it's like I just said now, you just withdraw. And that negative state is completely abandoned for a long time after that. But if you try to use willpower, all you do is suppress it. And soon enough, that thought comes back again. And sometimes it comes back even stronger than what it was before and that is uh, uh, the problem with using willpower. Uh, and in the meantime, you also exhaust yourself because willpower often takes a lot of energy. Uh, so double disadvantage of using willpower. Uh. Okay. Those are the two most important ways of overcoming bad thoughts. Uh, I will read out the last three also just for a sense of completion. Uh, and so then you have everything uh, or yeah, I'll see how far we get anyway. The third one is as follows. If while uh, you are examining the danger in those thoughts, they still arise in you, bad, unwholesome thoughts, connected with desire, with ill will, and with confusion, then you should try to forget those thoughts and should not give attention to them. When he tries to forget those thoughts and does not give attention to them, then any evil and wholesome thoughts connected with desire, ill will, and delusion are abandoned in you. 
uh, and subside and with the abandon of with of them the mind becomes stilled internally quieted brought to singleness and stilled uh, just as a man with good eyes who did not, not want to see forms that had come within range of sight uh, would either shut his eyes or look away so too you practice in this way here uh. so what does this mean well it means that uh, if you have for example, an unwholesome uh, state arising in your meditation. You have tried the two previous methods, but they don't really work. Yeah, it, hap- it happens very fast. Yeah, you try it, it doesn't work. It keeps on arising again. And then you just stay with your breath. You ignore that, uh, that thing which arises, and you just stay with the breath. Uh, and then you hope that it will just die down and disappear by itself if you do that. Uh, and very often it does. Uh, and the reason why it does is because all these negative thoughts uh, of desire and ill will, they need to be sustained. They can only exist if they are given sustenance. Without sustenance, they die down all by themselves. And so if you just focus on the breath and you don't feed that ill will or whatever it is, it will actually die down by itself. So this is kind of, so you just focus on something else. Go back to that. Uh, Then we have the fourth way. The fourth way is very similar to the uh, third way. And if while he is trying to forget those thoughts and is not giving attention to them, there still arise in him bad, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, connected with ill will, and connected with confusion, uh, then he should give attention to the stilling of the thought formation of those thoughts. Uh, Vitaka Sankara Santana, I think it is. Then he gives, when he gives attention to the stilling of the thought formation of those thoughts, uh, then any bad, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, connected with ill will, and connected with confusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandon of them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and stilled. Just as a man walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? Or he would walk slowly, then he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? Or he would stand, then he might consider, why am I standing? What if I sit? Really lazy fellow. And he would sit, (laughs) then he might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? And he would lie down. (laughs) By doing so, he would substitute for each grosser posture one that was subtler. In the same way, you give attention to the stilling of the thought formation of those thoughts. And then eventually your mind becomes steadied internally and stilled as a consequence. So the idea here, uh, the stilling of the thought formation, uh, sankara, this is the will, the thing that drives the thought. So what you are doing here is that you, you stop again, you stop uh, driving that thought, you withdraw the will, you withdraw the intention, you withdraw the volition that drives it. Uh, how do you do that? And this again is about becoming the passive observer. Yeah. So you stay with that thought, maybe you see, okay, I- I'm angry, huh? and you kind of just watch. You don't look aside, you don't do anything else. You kind of just stay with that thought in the mind, but you just observe rather than being involved in it. And of course, if you really observe, if you really have strong mindfulness and you're able to let go of the will and the volition, the thought disappears again very quickly because of that. And this is some of the techniques that are often used in what they call vipassana meditation. Yeah, you just observe, allow things to be. But here, it is only number four on the list. You try the other ones first of all. So, 
you, you understand what's going on here? Yeah, because uh, these thoughts they need the will, the volition to be sustained. Once you take the will out, just observing, things become calm naturally, automatically. Yeah? Then we come to the last one. Uh, if while he's giving attention to the stilling of the thought formation of those thoughts, uh, they still arise in him evil or bad, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with ill will, and with confusion. Uh, then when his, with his teeth clenched uh, and the, his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, uh, he should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. When, with his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind, and any bad, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, and with confusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind is still, etc. Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so too, uh, with the teeth clenched, etc., etc., you beat down mind with mind, and then the mind becomes stilled as a consequence. So this is uh, the only time, really, in this sutta where we talk about using willpower. Here, obviously, it is a willpower, yeah, you, you really going for it. No more messing around. And uh, <laughs> uh, but it is a last thing that you do at the very, very end. If nothing else works, then you use this particular method. And uh, the reason is why it is last is because it is painful. It takes a lot of uh, hard work. It takes a lot of energy. And of course, if you use this kind of method too much, uh, sometimes it can also drive you a bit crazy. You know, it is well known from a psychological perspective that if people really suppress things like anger too much, it has a very bad destabilizing psychological effect on people. So be very careful with this method. It's really a last resort. So especially if you are about to do something very bad, you say, okay, now I have no choice. I have to suppress because I don't want to do anything really bad or evil. So you kind of keep it out of reach by suppressing it instead. So this is the very, very last resort, and only if everything else fails do you actually do this. And that is, those are the five methods that the Buddha taught. This is how you overcome bad thoughts. You move your mind to good thoughts, then you get the good thoughts out of the way, and you go into the stillness. At the very end of the sutta, the Buddha says, anyone who practices in this way become a master of the ways of the mind. And whatever thoughts you want to think, you think them. And whatever thoughts you don't want to think, you don't think them. So exactly what you want to have in your mind, that is what is there. And that's pretty neat, isn't it? To always think what you want to think and nothing else. That's kind of a nice aspiration to have down the line Okay, so let's uh, stop there, have a short break, and uh, we'll come back and do some meditation together quarter past three here.